It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. I'm B.J. Bernstein, and I'm here with my guest, attorney Jessica Stern, and we are going to tackle uh, something that is dominating the news day in and day out, and that, of course, is the United States immigration system. Don't turn off the podcast. (laughs) It's important for so many reasons to actually understand. There's so much rhetoric. There's so many words. um, And yet we don't really know, again, the baseline. And that's what we're going to do with this podcast today is talk about the baseline of what types of immigration, what are these categories, what is the terminology, and where do we need to look, our politicians and all of us, you know, in looking forward and figuring out um, how to handle where we are now. And so, Jessica, welcome to Law Talk with BJ. Thank you for having me, BJ. You're right. It's There's not enough opportunity to really clarify what's going on, and I, I appreciate the chance to do that with you. So it starts with the Immigration and Naturalization Act. Woohoo! Woohoo! <laughs> Exciting stuff. And, you know, that is basically the body of law in governing immigration policy. Um, And it provides for different categories of persons who can come in and how they can come in um, legally. Mm -hmm. And you work with folks in that very area. So first, let's just start about, uh, before I get to the categories, give us an idea about your practice of, you know, who calls you and what kind of things are you working on in general? Sure. Well, we have a crimigration law firm. I like that. Thank you. Um, because we've realized that you know non-citizens have a whole lot at stake, and there's a lot more that's going on uh, when they're here in the U.S. and dealing with life like the rest of us are dealing with. But on top of it, there's extra to be worried about, and that's your status and and how how secure that is. And also that criminigration, criminal and immigration. Not that everybody who comes in is a criminal, Correct. but sometimes illegally coming in is a criminal status. That, um, and also being here even with status, something could happen that you never would imagine, just like it could to any of us. You know, you you could get arrested, and uh, being arrested and not being legally present creates a whole nother set of things that we can talk about, right? Exactly. There's so many more consequences for someone who's not a citizen. So a lot of folks come in, you know, first you have that I think the concept of family-based immigration, that people are already in the United States, they're citizens, and then they're trying to get family members to come into the country. Can you tell us a little bit about where we are in terms of immigration law about a family preference system? Sure. These are the happy cases we have that are fun to work on because there's somebody who's either a permanent resident or or a U.S. citizen. Okay, stop. Permanent resident. Oh. Let's give us a definition. Okay, so a permanent resident is someone with a green card. So we've heard green card before. And this means that um, they have applied through a family member usually or maybe in a rare situation through an employer. And we can talk about that a little bit for 
residency in the U.S. So they're immigrating to the U.S. They're not just here on a temporary visa. They have legal status to permanently reside here. So they've gone through the hoops of someone is here, whether it's a job or a family member, that entitles them to apply and come into the country to seek um, residency or citizenship here based on that relationship that they of the family member that's already here. Yes. So first, residency has to happen. So sometimes that's some confusion. People say that there's they can just jump to citizenship, but you have to be a permanent resident before you can ever be a citizen. Okay, so that word permanent resident, is it what it sounds like that you have moved your full time here in the United States? You're, yes. Okay. Yep. You have to be intending to live here permanently. You have to be in the U.S. more than you're outside of the U.S. And you have to be showing that you have the qualifying relationship to grant you that status and that you can afford right, well, to well, live I'm gonna here. I'm going to slow you down qualifying relationship to yes. grant you that status. What is that under the law? Under the law, it's a parent, a spouse, or a um, sibling. Okay. So, so immediate family. It yes. can't be my cousin from, you know, that I, three distant cousins nope. letting me back in. It, it, it has to be that immediate family. Yes. And for the um, son or daughter, I don't know if I mentioned that one. So it's parent, spouse, sibling, or son or daughter, and son or daughter is over 21. So a young child can't petition for their parent. You have to wait until the son or daughter is 21 years old. What about what happens with grandparents? No, no status can come from a grandparent. And aunts and uncles? Nope. All right. So that's a pretty tight family base. Mm -hmm. And then they get residency, as you just mentioned. And then what's the process from there? Well, I think we should mention that it's not just this quick jump, especially if we're talking about siblings or um, if it's a, a permanent resident applying for a family member. We're talking about 10 years or so, um, depending on the country that the person's from. But it's a long wait because there's only so many visas available in certain categories. Like for a brother or sister of a U.S. citizen, there's only 65,000 visas available per year. It sounds like a lot. But it's not. And it causes a backlog of right now we're looking at around 12 years of, of being behind in approving these visas. Wow. So it takes a long time before you can get to that residency before you can even get here. So that's they're in the other country waiting yes. to get here. They're not in the United States already. Correct. OK, so that's so that's that one category that's covered. And then we have. Folks, I think you mentioned who come here for working purposes. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what allows someone from another country to come in and work legally. This has changed a lot um, since the 1940s and 50s when we heard just about sponsors being able to sponsor somebody to come to the U.S. Now it's very limited and for very limited purposes. Usually it requires a specialized degree. So, um, you know, really highly skilled, highly educated person that is um, being sought from a company here because they can't find qualified employ employees that are U.S. citizens. So that's the type of folks who are attracted to Silicon Valley, to high-tech sure. jobs, who perhaps have expertise beyond our specialty such that that industry needs the person. Sure, exactly. And then there's some other skilled laborer types of jobs that are much shorter periods of time, like three months at a time to work on a project or something that is requiring their skill set that they can't find here in the U.S. Do you have any examples of those? Um, well, there's certain... Um, 
building projects or, or, or certain things that they may require either certain um, experience that maybe hasn't happened yet in the U.S. or maybe it requires a certain language skill in order to work in a certain area. And so they bring somebody from another country to do that. Also, there's like, you know, different models and actresses and things like that where you can get limited visas. Um, but it's 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 not a, a big window of opportunity. It's really limited and um, you're not allowed to do certain things under those visas. You have very strict rules of what you can and can't do. So let's say I come in on just hypothetical because, you know, I'm a lawyer and the word hypothetical oh, yeah. is one of our favorite words. So, so let's say I'm an actress and I come into the United States and I'm on a, a working visa. I fall in love with an American citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, then you're good to go because you get married to someone who is an American citizen. Am I right? And then you're on the path, not automatic. Yes. Yes. A spouse that has an immediate visa available. So if you're married to a U.S. citizen, there's still a processing time. And nowadays it's getting longer and longer. It's, you know, eight, nine months, a year before you be you would be granted your green card. But there's immediately a visa available because they don't want to separate spouses. Whereas if you're a sibling, you know, you're waiting 10 years, as, as I mentioned. And while we're talking spouses, you know, one of the things that over the years you've seen in film and on the news is this idea of marrying someone just to be able to get into the country, sure. marrying someone uh, not with the intent to really spend your life with them. How much of that is an issue? And I think that would probably part of your definition of crimmigration, mm-hmm. where you may lawfully get in here, but then it turns into potentially a criminal situation that that the only reason you're here is not for love but and for marriage papers. for papers. Yeah, I, I do see that a lot. I mean, it is it is a problem, but it's not something that goes unnoticed. You know, I it's obvious to me when a, a couple or a supposed couple comes into my office and they're trying to meet all the criteria, but the things that you would expect a typical couple to have they don't have you know they don't they haven't trusted each other with their finances they you know opened up a bank account but they didn't put any money in it because they don't trust each other with it there's a lot of red flags and immigration officials know what to look for and they highly scrutinize folks that go in for their interviews i mean you get questioned about everything and things that you don't think you should have to prove you know why should we have to prove this this is our our life this is our true way of living um but when you're asking for an immigration benefit of becoming a, a U.S. resident, they're going to look at everything and 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 look at everything with fine-tooth comb. So not an easy path there either. It's not. No, uh, you have to. It has to make sense, right? Would a, would a couple who truly is intending to spend their lives together would they do this, or does this kind of smell fishy? And if so, they'll separate the two um, and question them individually. Ask them down to the questions of what color sheets do you have? You know, it's like, well, we have different sheets. You know, they're not all white, but, you know, they all ask some interesting Very questions. specific things mm-hmm. trying to ferret out again that, you know, because the concern is you follow the law sure. with regard to that. Now, the big topic that's everywhere, um, that concept of refugees and asylum. Yeah. So let's tackle it. First of all, let's start. Refugees, who are they? And then how did they become asylum seekers? Great question. So refugees are granted 
a refugee status from outside of the U.S. through a United Nations program for refugees. It's a really thorough vetting process, and this came up a lot um, during the travel ban um, conversations and still is part of the conversation, that there needs to be stricter scrutiny there. But they already are waiting for about a year and a half or so as they're getting vetted and screened to be granted um, asylee status. I'm sorry, refugee status. So um, there are people in certain countries that are seeking refuge from um, persecution. A well-founded fear of persecution would be the legal standard there. Yes. So it can't just be, I want to leave where I am, but that because maybe of a social group, a political opinion, their religion or national origin, they are facing something that is dire. Absolutely. Okay. And they are that's already determined before they're granted the refugee status. So if there are refugees that were granted refugee status and they're now in the US, it's already been found that they have a well-founded credible fear of persecution. Um and so then once they're here in the US, then after a year, they're able to apply for their residency. Um versus Asylees um, seeking asylum status, they were not granted any particular status beforehand because maybe they couldn't get to a refugee camp where they had a settlement and a process already. They found their way to the U.S. on their own. And um, once they get to the United States, they have one year from the time that they get to the U.S. to apply for asylum status. And it's the same standard. So it's the same idea of the persecution for political opinion, religious beliefs, um, gender, or a particular social group. So with the influx that's happening right now, and according to the news, it's heavily from um, Guatemala, El Salvador. Um, we're hearing a lot about, you know, they're arrested as soon as they cross the border mm-hmm. or that the person is one of the well, let me backtrack a little bit. So one of the things I keep hearing on the news is we don't want you to come here for there's a way for you to ask for asylum before actually entering the territory of the United States. Is that the case or or it, it just depends on the country whether that's even viable? It depends on the country whether it's viable. I mean, there are some places that have established settlements because there's something happening in the country specifically that the— um, UNCHR organization has already determined is a legitimate, um, credible reason to be seeking refuge from that country. But in in Central America, what people are fleeing from are, you know, true dangerous scenarios of life and death from, you know, gang violence, um, just overall poverty and and danger in their country. But those, those circumstances, unfortunately, aren't commonly recognized in law to be enough of a of a fear of persecution for those reasons, right? Because it's generalized. A lot of people in the country are facing those things. And it's not necessarily an easy distinction of, oh, it's because of your religion. It's because of your political opinion. Um, it's basically you're not in the cartel or you're not in, um, you know, one of these other really serious gangs. And you're trying to say, I'm not a member, they're a member, and that's why I'm in a separate group from them. And it's not, 
the law hasn't completely recognized that yet, unfortunately. So they don't, they, the circumstances that you're mentioning is that they may not have the chance to apply beforehand and be approved beforehand. And they're taking the chance to come to the U.S. and seek safety for them and their families and then deal with the process when they get here. And apparently from the reports that we're hearing, they know enough to know that when they get to the United States and they see someone, they immediately are asking for asylum. Sometimes, yes, they they do. And then sometimes people, they see, they come through and they see if they get caught. And if they do, then they'll claim asylum because people don't necessarily know exactly what's going to happen once they're caught. And, you know, some are intending to go about it from the beginning through the legal process and some, you know, try their best to get in and then see what happens. So what is or can you give us an idea of what the law is in terms of what could grant you asylum? Is it what you just described, the fear, or does there have to be something more? Oh, it's such a high burden. I mean, the approval rate is so low. I think the national average is somewhere around 3 to 4 percent. Um, and then Georgia, unfortunately, the immigration courts, it's 1 percent. Um, because what's happening is that um, when you first come in, you have to establish what that fear is, and you have to show that it's reasonable and, and, and it's based on one of those protected reasons. And you have to be able to to prove it. You can first just claim what it is. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be granted asylum, you're going to have to prove why you you have this fear and that it truly exists. And it's based on your fear in particular, not just it's happening in your country, but that you specifically would face this persecution um, because of that protected reason. So when they first come in, there's like a preliminary review of whether they have the basic showing of it. And then um, if they're approved for that, then they go through the official process. But if they haven't really met the the necessary burden at first, then they get put into removal proceedings. And most people that are coming from Mexico, Central America, are getting placed in removal proceedings where they would then have to prove it to a judge. So they're automatically getting put into the deportation proceedings because they're not able to show the the true evidence at the beginning when they first come in. So is that a shift with the current uh, administration in terms of how quickly you're shifting over into those legal proceedings as opposed to coming, asking for asylum, and being released to be able to do that without being confined? The the legal process hasn't really changed. It's more of the policy around it. So we're hearing about the zero tolerance policy at the border. And I mean, that kind of goes into a different conversation about being criminally prosecuted first. Um, and we can talk about that if you want. But yes, let's go there. So before we before we go there, I guess just what was happening before was that you'd come in, you'd seek asylum, and then you were given some alternative measure to detention. So instead of being put in immigration detention, you were put on an ankle monitor and you were you were allowed to go connect with a family member who may have already been here. And if you, you have children with you, they're with you, exactly. they remain with you. Yeah. Okay. And then you have a report date where you report to ICE and you get a court date. To ICE, have to keep the immigration. And or, customs enforcement. Exactly. Yes. And 95% of people show up for their hearings. That's ICE statistic that 
95% are showing up when they're put on an ankle monitor. So they're not just like sent off into the country and to never be found again. They're showing up because they they want to, to be able to be here legally. Uh, but now what's happening, BJ, is that with the zero tolerance policy, the Southern District of Texas, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office has a mandate to have zero tolerance for folks coming in. And instead of them going through the immigration removal process where they can prove their asylum claim, they're being first prosecuted criminally for illegally entering the U.S. It's a federal crime as well. Normally, people aren't prosecuted for it, you know, in the first go. And and that was a matter of policy for a number of years. Yes. Okay. And then the zero tolerance comes along and it's a shift. Go criminal first, separate families, mm-hmm. incarcerate the parent. Mm-hmm. And then obviously we're dealing with all of this about where the children are and how they're being taken care of. Do you, you know, in your practice, have you ever seen anything quite like what's happening now? No, no, absolutely not. And that's across the board from colleagues and practitioners um, from all different parts of the country. It's There's always been discretion, you know. I mean, whenever we're talking about prosecution in, in any form, there's some sort of discretion to make decisions based on the circumstances and what's happening. But now we're just, we're seeing that discretion just completely taken away and just being hard-handed with, with everyone. So one other thing, as we're talking, is realizing how many people our economy uh, (laughs) operates on persons who have come into the United States who are not citizens to be able to run farms, run businesses, um, dishwash at restaurants. Um, I know over the years I've had more than one group of folks who were arrested, you know, at, a, at, a, at restaurants at the time, you know, and now it's even broader and it's affecting a lot of things. Um, you know, we're here in Georgia, but Georgia's not the only state. All the states that have a large agri- agricultural economy has, has relied on foreign workers. Mm-hmm. What has been happening? Are you seeing a shift there um, in terms of if I were a farm worker and I were coming in to pick peaches in Georgia in the past, before this particular administration, what was their process of being here? They would just get here and go to work, or did they get some sort of status in general? Sometimes they they would have some sort of status in order to work those farms. So those were the short-term visas that I was mentioning. Usually they're for three to six months during seasons um, that the farm farmers would need them. But then some have been here. They they came illegally at the border many years ago, most of the time 10, 15, 20 years ago. And now they've been working and they are beloved by their employers who don't even want to be called their employers anymore. I One of the most amazing things I've learned in doing this work is that there are so many really loyal friends to folks that, you know, others consider illegals, you know, but they would otherwise have really conservative policies. Um, They might be in South Georgia or somewhere else and consider folks their family. I mean, they love these guys and will do anything to help them and are blown away that as a U.S. citizen, they can't do anything to stop the deportation bus from rolling over their friend and their employee. And it's it's really heartbreaking because they they think they should be able to do more. And I say, well, you, you have to call your congressman. I mean, that's what you have to do and and speak about how important this is for you. Have you seen, you know, 
a lot of these employers, like it's they they know that they're not legal. They know that they they're not they don't have the proper papers. Mm-hmm. Um, has have you seen any prosecutions of employers in the last ten years or so um, for turning a blind eye to what the law is, even though without that labor, we wouldn't necessarily, or they probably would not have had the peaches picked or mm-hmm. the tobacco or, you know, grapefruit in Florida. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, pick the state, pick the crop. Um, that's been the backbone of a lot of industry. Absolutely. In Over the last 10 years in this administration and the last administration, there were active raids, so to speak, where there would be an active enforcement action against certain companies that were employing a lot of undocumented workers. That certainly happened over time. I haven't seen it as a consistent policy. I think that it's it's hard to enforce. It's also not necessarily in everyone's best interest to do so. It harms a lot of people. So I think sometimes there's a, a decision to not use enforcement when it's already limited, right? There's only so many boots on the ground and um, they're not necessarily targeting employers unless it's on a large scale. But I have been seeing more and more threats to the employers that are employing my clients that are standing up for them and coming to court and saying, I vouch for this guy. I've known him for 10, 15 years. There's a lot of intimidation going on. So the ICE agents or even the judge will you know, lecture and, and threaten them that something could happen to them. And, you know, they're pretty fearless, I'll say. I mean, they're not afraid because they know that it's the right thing to do in, in the most most cases to stand up for somebody that they believe in, somebody who they think deserves to be a U.S. citizen more than U.S.-born citizens do sometimes, is that is their opinion. And then at other times, I know, like with my criminal practice, I had a young man who was court-appointed to me in federal court who had been working at um, a grocery store. And it turned out that a lot of people from his community, I want to say maybe he was Czechoslovakian. I can't, I can't, it was a Slavic community and he was in the United States and um, he was actually arrested not because of his immigration status, but they arrested him to be a witness in the case and hold him so that he would have to testify against the employer and went through a whole lot to just get him out on bond. What did they charge him with? Well, it, it, there's a there's a way to get a, a warrant for your arrest to be a witness. It's So it's... I forgot the exact name as I'm talking about well, it here. I hope they would give him a visa for that. Well, I mean, there's no, the whole. Well, you know what was crazy? No, visa. no, and wow. then and then and then he ended up eventually. I think he testified, and then he was gone. Wow. Um, I'm sure you've seen this a lot too, where it's really hard for the federal government to to give S visas because they have to be the ones to apply for it based on being a witness, and it's so rare that that they'll do it. They want the benefit. And, they want the benefit, but not yeah. the other. And and mm-hmm. is there Obviously, we're in a no man's land right now about knowing what's next um, in terms of immigration. But in in terms of your practice, I mean, how are you, you know, it sounds like from the news, it's just impossible to help someone. So you, as an immigration lawyer, what are you able to at least offer or, or do for someone in these circumstances? What we're really focusing on now is bringing hope Back to the conversation. Um, it's been really scary for our clients and for the community. And to instill that 
back into their lives is really critical because, you know, there's families and kids that are going through trauma right now, and that impacts societies for years to come. Uh, There is a lot that we can do for our clients. I mean, really, the law hasn't changed. The policies have changed, and that's thrown us for a loop a bit. But now we know what we're dealing with. We know to expect the most enforcement possible. And so what we have to do is prepare. So we're helping our clients prepare so that they're not, you know, sitting back and kind of taking their time to potentially make a decision about their status. But instead, if you're a permanent resident, it's time to become a citizen. There's a longer wait now for citizenship than ever before because people don't want to have their status at at risk and for good reason. They want to be able to vote. They want to be able to have a say in what's going on and who's leading our country. And so people are standing up now more than ever. And we're really proud to be standing up beside them, in front of them, behind them, and and helping them secure their their, um, permanent place here in the U.S. So once again, lawyers aren't all bad. <laughs> no, nonsense. no. And as we're with every episode, I try to we've been sipping on a cup of tea as we talk about um, something that's really daunting. And I look forward to maybe some more conversations with you and some other lawyers, because, again, you know, it's this dichotomy of we are a country of immigrants. I mean, we, everybody, the indigenous people, the Indians and others who are here, who was their land first, we all, somebody connected to one of us came in first mm-hmm. without a visa, uh, without any mm-hmm. organization. I know my own family, child of immigrants, mm-hmm. uh, or, or my grandparents were immigrants. And it's what makes us unique from other countries. And it it's makes what us, makes us the greatest nation in the world. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I want people who have fought through very difficult circumstances who make it here to be part of our country. Those are exceptional people. I want them here working alongside of me and, and being part of my community. I mean, that's that's a, a good value to have. And so, see, you just confirmed that I made the perfect choice of tea. So we're enjoying peppermint tea, mm. which stimulates the conscious mind and a increases conscious thought. And if anything needs consciousness right now, it is how we're treating the most vulnerable amongst us um, and examining who we are as a country. And when we see that Statue of Liberty and we just celebrated a holiday commemorating our independence, how are we going to treat those who have come and are part of us. So, Jessica, thank you for joining me on Law Talk. Thank you so much, BJ. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.